0: Hello everyone! Welcome back to Thoughtful Intentions. I'm your host Fiona Winch and today I'm joined by Nelson Simone. Nelson Simone is a writer and performer. Originally from La Paz, Bolivia, he was a long-time collaborator with the choreographer Susan Hefner and the composer-percussionist Michael Evans, with whom he created performances and videos that explored the human situation with wit, irony, and lots of pratfalls. In 2006, Simone led a team of interviewers and facilitators from StoryCorps, the National Oral History Project, to New Orleans to chronicle the life of the city in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. In 2016, he created The Accidental Sailor, the storytelling performance on which Soul of the Hurricane is based. He lives in Brooklyn. Hi, Nelson. Hi.
1: (laughs) Nice to be with you.
0: Thank you for being here. Um... I was going to ask if it was too much of a trek, but you did inform me that you walked. So <laughs> you it walk. was, in fact, a trek. <laughs> it was a
1: trek of almost two hours.
0: Yeah, that is in just...
1: several Brooklyn neighborhoods. It
0: really... It, Brooklyn is so huge. And that... I knew that conceptually moving here, but um, it continues to amaze me how much there is to explore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's big geographically and culturally. I went through a Hasidic neighborhood and a Latino neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, All kinds of things. Yeah. So
0: so for those listening, Nelson and my mom became friends during their year abroad and have since been back in touch, lucky for us. (sighs) Um, So today we're going to talk about your new book, Soul of the Hurricane, and the events that transpired leading up to that experience, um, which you chronicle so vividly, life as an author and your journey as a young artist into adulthood, Mm -hmm. all things considered, um, but first, your book. So I'll I'll try to explain it a bit and tell <laughs> okay. me if you think I'm off because okay. I did just finish it and it was mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, so Soul of the Hurricane was published this past October by Chicago Review Press. Um, and I knew your story a little bit thanks to my mom. And I'd also seen the movie, um, the George Clooney movie, A Perfect Storm, right. which I'm sure Most people bring up when they talk about this. Sure. It's Um, in the title. Yeah, but I was (laughs) excited to read your rendition. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for our listeners, if you haven't read it yet, Nelson basically ended up on a Norwegian schooner, which was built in 1868. Mm -hmm. Um, From Brooklyn to Bermuda, the Anna Christina, which is the oldest ship in continuous service in the world. Is that still true? At the time. At the time, okay. So in the midst of this journey, they came to head with Hurricane Grace, the southern end of the perfect storm. And without much prior experience to this excursion, you refer to yourself often as the accidental sailor. Yes.
1: I I would say I had zero experience. Um, You
0: had enough to talk your way into this. Not that you really talked your way into it at all.
1: (laughs) I I was trying to talk my way out of it. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So I was hoping just to kick things off, if you don't mind reading an excerpt from the book.
1: Sure, I'd love to. Uh, So I'll set set it up. Uh, Basically, um, I got a phone call Uh, in the middle of the week and this was back in 1991 from a friend who had sailed with the owner Norman Baker and his family on Anna Christina he was dying to get back on the ship he loved it and uh, Norman was an adventurer and an amazing man in his own right and he was giving a, a lecture at the Museum of Natural History that night and my friend Peter got wind that they were sailing Anna Christina from Brooklyn to Bermuda and that they needed crew. They wanted hands. They wanted people. And he said we could go. And my heart dropped because I didn't want to go. I (laughs) knew I was supposed to want to go. Uh, Who wouldn't want to go on an adventure like that? And so um, basically, I thought I was off the hook because Peter subsequently told me they didn't need people. Then we got there, and uh, Norman's wife, Marianne, basically invited all of us. Mm -hmm. And so this excerpt is from um, the next day when the three of us who accepted um, show up at the, uh, the boatyard where they're preparing the ship. The next day, Thursday, October 24th, Peter, Mike, and I made our way to Mill Basin where the ship was in dry dock and final preparations for the journey. Peter saw Anna Christina first at the far end of the yard. She was out of the water and the scaffolding looked like two huge hands holding her up like an offering. This would be Anna Christina's first trip without Norman at the helm. Busy with lectures and other commitments, he had hired a young sailor, Joey Gelband to get her from Brooklyn to Bermuda. Norman would join the ship there to continue the trip to the Caribbean. As we stood on the dock, Joey approached approached us. He had some bad news. We're eight, he said. I need nine. I can only take one of you. I'll take the most experienced. I bit my lip, trying to figure out What expression I should have on my face. Surprised? Quizzical? Expectant? Who knew? Inside, I was dancing a jig, because I knew that while Peter was a landlubber like me, except for those few outings with the bakers, Mike had been sailing his whole life. Sunnies, day sailors, dinghies, all kinds of small craft. I shrugged in what I hoped looked like disappointment. I've only had a week on the Clearwater. Joey scratched his beard stubble. Well, he said, the Clearwater has the same kind of rigging as Anna Christina. It's only a week, but you've still got more experience on a tall ship than these other two. And so I would go.
0: Thank you. And how old were you at that time?
1: I was thirty-two.
0: Okay, and you were working the grave, primarily the graveyard shift at a law firm, right?
1: Yes, at uh, what we refer to as the Dark Star, (laughs) a big corporate firm.
0: This that sounds like an adventure in itself. But um, (laughs) in the book, you go into great detail of Anna Christine's origin story and the anatomy of a hurricane and your life experiences in short. Um, but to touch on Anna Christina, as you so beautifully described her there, mm. um, she was, should I say rebuilt? Pretty much. Pretty much yeah. by this man that you mentioned, Norman Baker. Norman Baker um, and his family. Who
1: mm-hmm. is
0: quite the character, it yes. seems like. Yes, yes. So do you mind painting like a little picture of us, for, of Norman for us?
1: Well, Norman, let's see. Norman was in my mind, a complete adventurer. He would never describe himself that way, because he always, he would never take an adventure just for its own sake. Mm -hmm. It had to have a larger purpose, Mm. you know. Uh, But he had been um, a gold miner. He had uh, been a a prospector. He had sailed in the Pacific. Uh, I mean, he'd been all over the place. Uh, You know, when I talk to people about Norman, I, I mentioned that you hear that thing about punching a shark in the nose to mm-hmm. survive. He had punched a shark at one time wow. in his life. You know, he'd just kind of done it all. Mm-hmm. And um, he knew from a very, very early age that he wanted to sail the world. That was his dream always. And uh, he'd ended up in the Korean War and had ended up on a big ship, Made of metal, and had mentioned to someone on the ship that this wasn't what he had hoped for, and the guy mm-hmm. said you need you don't need one of these ships, you need a wooden ship you know driven by the wind, and so that then became the dream uh, to find a ship that could take him around the world
0: Wow, you know I can't say that I've met a ton of sailors in Brooklyn like, it's, <laughs> you just, haven't looked yet. it's kind of funny that um, that you ended up among these folks um, so you knew you knew Norman Baker for about a week before well I didn't this...
1: know Norman at, at all okay really. I met had him, known of I met him, him perhaps at the lecture okay. uh, I'd known of him okay I met him at the le- lecture and uh, really had just seen them that time before we left on the trip so as I wow. say in that excerpt um, I was the last one taken mm-hmm. onto a crew of nine mm-hmm obviously the least experience but there were a few others that had very little experience mm-hmm. um and it just did not bode well I, I really feel like right. uh we were sailing we were sailing at the end of October because in sailing lore and in sailing the thinking of sailors uh, there's a saying in in uh in the Atlantic uh, by October it's over
2: hmm.
1: meaning that by October uh, the, the Atlantic hurricanes have, have ended, mm. and it's before the, the winter nor'easters come down from the north. And so you have that window. It was right okay. at the end of October, and that's the window that Norman wanted to get the ship down there. Oh, it didn't work it out. It didn't work. It did not work
0: out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So here you are, um, supposed to go on an eight-day right, eight day journey
1: with days. eight
0: mm-hmm. other crew members mm-hmm. suddenly. Uh, didn't even tell your parents.
1: No, they were in Bolivia at the time. So So
0: what do you think compelled you to do it?
1: Oh, Fiona, that is a good question that I've, you know, really, really, I mean, I've thought about that all these years, and certainly in in the making of the book, uh, have had to wrestle with that. Um, I think that, you know, when I I talk about it, I talk somewhat about the you know, growing up as an immigrant, I came to this country when I was a very small child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really learned how to get along. I learned how to read people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I learned how to, you know, my family came up in the early 60s when, you know, the the term Latino didn't even exist. You wanted right. to fit in. You didn't want to make waves. And so I became very good at that. And I came, became very good at gauging people. Um, and figuring out how to get them to like me, to accept me, you know, and and to sort of um, leave me alone in a certain way.
0: (laughs) Do you feel you were aware of that at the time, or is this just something that has come to mind in hindsight more?
1: Um, Somewhat hindsight, but I I was very good. So I would be having a conversation. Uh As a young person or as a teenager, I could have a conversation with you, and as, I, as we would be having the conversation, I would be reading your expression. And if I saw that it was going from sort of a smile to a frown, I could turn it very subtly hmm. in a way that would get you back. So it's, it's really, a, I, I, and I do think that, I don't know specifically if it's part of the, you know, the skills you learn as, a, as an immigrant, but mm-hmm. I think certain people in certain situations in life learn to do that. You know, we yeah. get very good at that. Many that's of us joined the dip- diplomatic corps, I guess. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: well, that's fascinating. So you mentioned just now we're going on this journey with you for a little bit. You mentioned in the book departing on midnight on Saturday because apparently leaving on a Friday is superstitious. And I have to say, I didn't realize how much of sailing is superstitious
1: it's all superstitious. were
0: you traditionally a super superstitious person or did did I was
1: shocked I mean because I got there at you know eight in the morning expecting to leave and there were still things to get ready so the Uh day did go on but at a certain point we were sitting around you know and I was thinking why aren't we leaving and then someone told me you know, we have to wait till 1201 till it's Saturday morning. So that's what we did. That do is
0: so funny. Yeah. I, yeah, I really, yeah. that came as a surprise to me as well, yeah. just reading it. Um, so the imagery in the book is so evocative and the images of the ship being rebuilt specifically, of course, all of the, the grime and the manual labor that they went through to do mm. that was, I just, it just feels like a different world to me. Um, a different lifestyle for sure um but especially of course the imagery in your scene of your rescue just and for those who haven't had the opportunity to read it yet i hope i'm not spoiling it but this is kind of <laughs> this is okay, kind of yeah. a major part of it yep. um jumping into the sea and being airlifted by helicopter right and yet you recall feeling relaxed
1: right well, can I tell you briefly about the ship, though, before yes, we get please, into that? Yes, please. Because yes. I, I, I do think that the, the two pillars of the story, for me, are really yes. Norman and his family for and sure. the ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if we'll call it an obsession, but really his, his goal, his dream to, to circumnavigate the globe. And so he and his family found Anna Christina. Uh, his wife found the ship in, in 1982 in mm-hmm. uh, Tortola. Um, they sort of got hoodwinked, right? I mean, the ship was in much worse condition. The owner told them it was 90 days away from being ready. Right. And so they bought the ship. They got it inspected, but through one thing and another, the inspection didn't find all the the problems. And so, long story short, Norman took his wife, his three children, who at that point were in their early 20s, Mm -hmm. um, and because it had been this whole family thing for all these, since they were kids. Right, this was
0: a promise.
1: The promise, the the, the sort of family myth, Mm -hmm. took them down there in in, uh, 1982, said we're going to be done in 90 days, and then we're going, and 90 days became 90 more and 90 more, and it ended up four years. Four years, all of their money. They sold their house the kids went back to their lives, so by mm-hmm. that time it was just Norman and Marianne on the ship, um, and they finally finished in 1986. They brought the kids back, uh, they set off, and they got 10 miles before they burned out the engine. That was... And that was it. Yeah. That was the end of it. And so um, they ended up bringing her up to Opsail um, 86, which was the celebration of the Statue of Liberty, the 100 year Right. And so that was kind of the next life of the ship from Mm -hmm. 86 to 91. And after all of that, so she had a whole life training cadets and all of this business up and down the coast to Nova Scotia. And in 1991, that was the beginning of the, the next phase of the dream. And so we were taking her down to Bermuda. And from there, Norman never gave up the idea. That he was going to come down and they were going to go around the world. And so that's what we were supposed to be taking her down for. So
0: it's kind of incredible just to think about her life mm-hmm. because, you know, she had been on this earth for longer than any of us yeah. had been alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. I,
1: that, and that, it's funny you put it that way because it really was when i was writing the book because of you know uh, understandably publishers are trying to get away from uh, uh sexist language and so, so they said you can't call the ship her really yeah because
0: i just ca- i i just caught you calling her she well, and that's because why, yeah. that's
1: where i pushed back i said i i would agree with you yes of course of course and if, in the book, I refer to every other vessel in the book as it, uh-huh. but I said this was not a ship. This was their their fourth child. This right. was absolutely part of the family. Right. And we we can't treat it as an object. And so that's when they they agreed to to refer to her as as a she because yeah. that's what they.
0: And and that, then devastation, of course is a devastation like norman was never recovered
1: he never recovered um yeah
0: i mean do you ever it, it is there is kind of some beautiful mystique about thinking about where she's laid to rest now do you ever think of that i do yeah
1: i do i've thought a lot about it over the years um
0: because we don't know
1: Nobody will ever Nobody know. Nobody will know. I mean, there are Fiona. There are thousands of ships. People don't realize how many ships went down in the in the heyday of of the transatlantic, um, you know, sailing. I mean, thousands and thousands of ships. It's um,
0: it's just amazing how many stories must usually go down with them. Like, yeah. what a miracle that this one didn't. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um.
2: So to bring you I, back, you were talking yeah, about no, the... Yeah, uh... no, I mean,
0: no, that was a perfect segue for me, actually, because I was just going to mention, I'm not scared of the ocean, but the idea of being on <laughs> open water <laughs> does not make me feel great. Mm. Um, I actually often ask, often is probably a stretch, but I have asked my friends before whether they'd rather be lost in space or lost at sea, and you'd be surprised how controversial that wow, question is. Wow, I love that. What
1: a great I question. personally...
0: Think it would be much more terrifying to be lost at sea. Oh
1: my God, really? I
0: do, mainly because that feels more realistic. That's <laughs> you true, know, like
1: that's
2: true. if
0: I'm going into space, <laughs> someone would know where I am, I think. Okay. Um, but it just feels more tangible. And I mean, I will say, when I look at the stars or I look at the ocean, I feel just as humbled either way. Yeah. You know, especially living in a city. You can just forget about how large this universe is yeah. in this world, and then and then you look out at at either of those, and you just immediately feel how how small you are, but not in a bad way,
1: like just right. But if you ever ever get the chance, because maybe we'll make it up to space the way things mm-hmm. are going, but probably not. But if you get the chance to be on a ship in open water with no land anywhere there's there's just nothing like it because it's exactly what you say I and mean, we can imagine what that's like mm-hmm. we can I, I've i been in places where I've looked up at the sky with very little light pollution and I can see yeah. the universe uh, but to be on the water on this you know 96 feet is nothing on open ocean. She was 96 feet long. Oh. Um, and just to slowly, you know, I stood on, on the deck and I slowly turned 360 degrees and I just saw, really, the you see the universe, you see it, and you see what those people crossing the ocean back when, when they didn't know where they would get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really was like the universe to them it was like space because yeah. you couldn't see anything else it's amazing
0: i i find it pretty um it brings me peace that you say that even after yeah all that you've <laughs> been through <laughs> that you would still <coughs> recommend it Oh uh, yeah and absolutely. you have gone sailing since
1: i did go sailing yep yep
0: that's pretty incredible
1: uh, yeah uh, I, w- I won't turn down an opportunity like that yeah yeah no.
0: I don't know if you're religious and I don't want to cross into that territory if it's undesirable, but I imagine that experience just does have a profound impact on the way that you see the world a little bit, just or yeah. our place on earth, perhaps. Yeah. I, I mean,
1: I think that it's tricky because a lot of that comes in retrospect. And when people ask me about it, you know, the actual experience was—, was you know really from beginning to end from the time things got rough and we realized there was a tropical storm and then it got upgraded to a to hurricane grace and Mm -hmm. then we started taking measures and you know from that moment to the moment the helicopter came and took us out was 30 hours right and uh for those 30 hours we were really just trying hard There, there wasn't time to to notice you know you're just working you know yeah. you're working you're supporting each other you're doing everything you can whatever you can
2: mm-hmm.
1: um to to stay afloat and to support those that are doing that work you know and so um yeah a lot of it is really in the days and weeks and years after that I had a chance to think about it right um,
0: There's not much time for reflecting when you're trying to maybe stay alive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that rescue too, how incredible you had to jump off the ship into the open water and climb yourself into a basket that was then.
1: Well, yeah. You know, at first they weren't going to come because when, when those pilots, when that crew came on, duty that day they said don't worry about it those guys they're too far out (laughs) you know so what's the point but they would not be denied like this guy Paul Lang who was the captain Mm -hmm. he started doing the numbers and they said okay let's go and so the way the Coast Guard operates is which is interesting to me is they don't necessarily have a full plan because they can't wait they have to just go Mm -hmm. and then figure things out as they go And by that, I mean, um, they took off. They were about 10 minutes out of Elizabeth City, North Carolina, because we were off the coast of Carolina. Mm -hmm. And um, Paul Lang's um, co-pilot turns to him and he says, we're not going to make it. And Paul says, what do you mean? He said, well, I just did all the numbers and we don't have enough fuel to go all the way out and get all the way back. And so at that point, they radioed to um, the station, and that's when when uh, the, the station started looking for what what they call a lily pad. Okay. And a lily pad is some vessel that they can land on and sure. refuel. And so that's what they did, and they found uh, the aircraft carrier, uh, the USS America, which was riding out the storm. And so,
0: so in some ways, it was a sequence of... Right events,
1: absolutely. Yeah. And if you want to talk about, you know, be because Paul Lang is a deeply religious man, okay. and he was very honest with me. Um, that he said there was there's no he said there's no way that I can fly that well. There's no way that you know, and I I think part of it is his modesty, but he said he said there's just no way I could have done that. There's no way I could have chosen that crew, it was just the right crew, It was just the right circumstances. And so he definitely saw the hand of God in every bit of it. Wow. You know.
0: Um, And on that note, you sort of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you sort of in that, those 30 hours came to terms with the idea of dying a little bit, right? Uh, When the ship was filling with water. Mm -hmm. And if you don't mind me reading, I just, and I should have mentioned this earlier, but there, and I don't want to spoil this, this this is why I'm tempted to, but I am tempted to read it because it's just written so beautifully. There's just one um, passage at the end here when you're talking about that. Is it okay? Yes, please. (laughs) Okay. You said, but one thing occurs to me, standing on the deck that night, staring up at the light, stunned and scared and wondering how I'd gotten there, Wondering if I'd survive, I felt completely alive. And the challenge has been to realize that I was no more alive then than I am now. As I write this, or when I'm walking in the park, enjoying the sun, or when I'm sitting in my room, feeling bored, I'm never any more or less alive at any moment than I am at any other, if I but choose to notice. A hurricane helps you notice. A hurricane will get your attention. But it's not, strictly speaking, necessary. And I don't know. I loved that part. <laughs> and I was wondering if you'd tried to carry that sentiment into your everyday life.
1: I, I, I do when I can remember, yeah. you know. And that's, uh, I think it's a decision that you make every day. Um, and I, f- I forget it as often as I remember it. And then I will stop and remember um, you know, that, that, that it's true. And because I, as I wrote also in the book, when people ask me, you know, every time the first thing they want to know is, did it change your life? Mm-hmm. You know, from, from the, because after the, the experience I was, uh, I, some of the crew members didn't want to ever talk about this at all. I was on the opposite end. Like right. my press was, process was talking about it constantly to try to figure it out. And all of my friends wanted to know. And every single person was, you know, they lean in Mm -hmm. and they just want to know, did it change your life? Because they will be so upset if it didn't change (laughs) your life. And that's what it leads me to, that it didn't, you know, what I say is it did and it didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't go off and, you know, try to follow Mother Teresa and, and do, yeah, you know, I went back to the the graveyard shift at the law firm for a while. And, you know, I led what was outwardly a, a very normal life. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't a different life than the one I'd had. Um, and so I think that the, 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 the way that it changes you and the, the way that it affects you is, is, at least for me, it was much more subtle. And mm. uh, it took place over time. Um, and I do think that you know, and I've been thinking about this a lot in the, on the heels of the pandemic as um, I think it changed my thinking about the relationships that I want and what I want those relationships to be. Um, and... How so? I think that p- part of that experience and part of what we've all been through in the last two years makes me appreciate in a certain way the people I was close to I got so much closer Mm -hmm. to them Mm
2: -hmm.
1: out of decision you know there were people I was calling every single day just to see if they were okay Mm -hmm. and I think that it's part of the the same piece of you know what are the relationships we want to have what are the connections we want with each other how where can we be And how do we keep deciding to, to, to do that, you know, Mm -hmm. in the face of everything?
0: Well, I think that's an interesting observation, too, on just this desire of people hoping that it changed your life in a dramatic way, because so many of us are kind of maybe subconsciously waiting for something remarkable to happen to force you into (laughs) a different, you know, way of being. Um, But. Like you said, it's it's a choice. It's a choice that you can make every day. Right. It's a decision. Um,
1: See, and I think that's the. I don't know if I want to call it a problem, but the difficulty with waiting for some big external because, um, you know, I got to have this big big experience. There's a very good chance I will. I would not have survived it. You know, there's it's, right. there was every possibility that I wouldn't have lived through it, and so you can't really wait for that to be close to death that way. You know, you can, but you know, it's it's um, you don't want to. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to because um, because you might not make it, and it's because the the decision really is in in our minds, and that, to me at least, is you know, if we want to think of the, again, the pandemic in that way, Mm -hmm. it's something that we've all been through. It's something we've all had to face. uh, And we've had to look at death, you know, in so many ways for the last two years. Um, And if, if that doesn't give us a chance to appreciate each other and our lives, then, you know, what will? And so I think it's all versions of the same thing.
0: Yeah. So, um, maybe it didn't change your life in the way that people expected it to, but do you think it perhaps altered your trajectory a
2: little bit? Um, say
1: more, what do you mean by trajectory? Like
2: I'm,
0: well, I guess, tell me a little bit about the path that you were on and whether or not that <laughs> changed um, because of this.
1: I have to say, you know, and I was a little, I was trying to think of, well, how am I going to talk to her about this whole trajectory thing? Because um, I think that there have been a lot of accidental moments, you know, it seems to me, and Uh being, you know, this book, I I really feel in a certain way like an accidental writer. I didn't (laughs) set out to write the book. Somebody kind of told me to, and in my, in my, um, uh, in my dedication, you know, I, I talk about the people who, um, kind of refused to listen to me, um, In fact, can I read this one Please, yeah. So in the acknowledgments, I say, writing is a solitary act, but making a book takes lots of people, and help has come from many directions over many years. To everyone who told me I should write a book, and those who finally made me sit down and do it, I thank you, and I'm sorry for doubting you. Let these pages stand as your resounding collective. I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, to my credit, I think that there have been moments and experiences where uh, I've been able to sort of take up the challenge um, and, and, and seize that particular moment. Uh, this, I think, for me in the last several years has been one of the best um, including the decision to um, to do the precursor to this, which was the performance piece right.
0: on so, which it's based. Yes, and I remember before the pandemic that my mom was planning to come up to the city yes. to see you perform. I think that was supposed to be in February. Yes. Did you get a chance to perform it?
1: I did. I think the last uh, performance I did was just before. I was actually invited to a, a, a yacht club in Detroit, Michigan, Right wow. before they shut everything down. Yeah, I was, cool. I was kind of touring around. That's one thing I, was, I okay. had been putting together.
0: And that was a one-man show? Yes. Very cool.
1: It was a storytelling. It was, um, and it was growing. You know, it was really so interesting to me that, um, you know, it started out kind of as a, uh, you know, it's sort of a presentation with mm-hmm. PowerPoint, da-da-da. And, and then my friend Michael Evans, who's one of the people I've performed with, uh, I asked him to start doing a soundscape. and um, the last performances I did in the city, uh, he actually he would be standing behind me with this array of kind of uh, uh, you know sound effects and clips and and so he did all the sound live, Wow. which was amazing uh, because he's he would know the 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 shape of the piece and he would intuit, you know oh, when to cool. build. It was really, really. How do you done?
0: a solo performance piece before?
1: No. Uh, yeah, and they kind of forced me to do that, too. So I <laughs> I had met... Um, That's intimidating. I had met these um, these sailors. They run a, actually a sailing school down on the Hudson. Uh-huh. And I had met them, uh, and they said... Uh, when I heard they were sailing people, I said, well, I've got a story for you. And I told them briefly, and they said, well, we're starting a speaker series... So you have to come. So that was back in 2016. So uh-huh. it was years before I came to this. So that was the first time I did it. And my friends from back in the day, the guys from uh, the law firm, and who'd been part of the experience, they came and saw it, and they said, "You've got to keep doing this. You've got to build that's on cool. it." So that's how I kept developing the piece over the years.
0: And I, I suppose, you were quite accustomed to telling the story, at least. So yes, it might have been a different in a different capacity. But um, I recall, too, you mentioning telling the story and having Norman in the audience at one point, (laughs) correcting your facts occasionally. Literally (laughs) six
1: feet from me and uh, had no qualms about piping up in the middle of the... So,
0: I, you know, of any audience after that would probably be (laughs) easier.
1: (laughs) Yeah, after Norman, there's nothing that's going to faze you. (laughs) Right.
0: Um, So we know now that... Theater has remained a part of your life, mm. but flashbacking a little bit. Uh, in the book, when you discuss your work at the graveyard shift at the law firm, you said, After all, I had come to New York to be an actor. Creativity was supposed to be my currency, but by the time I landed at Scadden mm-hmm. in 1990, I felt no creative impulse at all. I had stepped away from theater and I had no plans to go back. I didn't see a way forward in that world do you remember what made you feel that way?
1: I think, I mean, if I'm, if I'm speaking honestly, you know, a lot of my, um, efforts and impulses were not really well thought out. And by that, I mean, I love the theater. I love performing. I love every aspect of it. Um, but in terms of ha- having a career mm-hmm. as an actor, you know, like like many of us, I think, you know, I have many friends who are wildly uh, talented, um, but they don't have the, the business chops. They don't have the, you know, and when I've met over the years, you know, I've had friends who are working actors and have been on Broadway. And, mm-hmm. and when I meet the people who are making a living at it and they... There's just something about them. They have a business plan. You know, they have, they have both those things, mm-hmm. right? That when uh, you may have been told too as a young actor uh, that to kind of make it in this, you, you have to somehow preserve the tenderness of yourself inside, but you have to have such a tough skin
2: mm-hmm.
1: on the outside. And that's a hard thing for many of us to, to pull off. Mm-hmm. Like either we have the one or the other. Uh, it's hard to hold on to both. And, um, and so my idea was to come up to New York and to go to a really good school, which, you know, I thought I found in in the neighborhood playhouse. Um, And, you know, I studied with people and I I tried to kind of go that route that, you know, it's one way of doing it is uh, really to, to work on, on the craft where at the same time, there were people in the business, they were telling me, like, forget that. Just go <laughs> sure. out and start auditioning. That right. stuff's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a different, uh, you know, it's a different perspective. I don't know that one is, is better than the other. But I think that they, as people who are in the business in one way or another, um, they kind of saw that side of it. And they said, you you can stay, you know, behind those closed doors forever.
2: Mm-hmm
1: you know, if you don't get out there, and so once I did, it was still very hard for me, I I kept trying to find a safe place to, to grow, and to, but also, I was scared, yeah, you know, and the, um, the, the grind of it. You know, I never even got to the grind because it was so terrifying to me. So rather than that, I mean, I I, I did good things. I helped yeah. establish a company because I said, OK, let me go over here and mm-hmm. make this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did some good work. Uh, and some people actually, you know, use that as a stepping stone. Um, but I was never doing the, you know, the the audition routine. Mm -hmm. I just never got to that. It was just too hard. And so mostly, you know, over the years, I found opportunities to, um, uh, to work with people I love. The work I did with the the choreographer, Susan Hefner and with Michael Evans. Oh my God. I mean, just talk about about that. Well, they're just incredible. I mean, they're, they're very much, Susan was a a featured dancer in a company uh, for this uh, choreographer named Alwyn Nicolai, Mm -hmm. who was one of the great New York choreographers. She toured the world with him as a featured dancer and, you know, modern dance. And Michael uh, was part of that downtown music, alternative, Mm -hmm. crazy, Uh, you know, and this, for me, I had never heard any sounds like (laughs) that before. I'd grown up on... Sort of classical music and sure. classical ballet and all that. So, uh, just these crazy creative people. And uh, so Susan was the the wife of an acting friend, and she sort of roped me in because she needed. You know, I I I worked both as a performer with her and as her stage manager,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I actually played the role of the stage manager while I stage managed. So it was all oh, this fine. crazy kind of crossover. Mm-hmm stuff. And, um, um, you know, and it's the kind of thing where there are these people all over New York that are just the most amazing, creative people, and you're never going to see them. You know, yeah. they are going to be playing for, you know, rooms of 50 people somewhere downtown in the garage somewhere. Yeah. But they're just amazing. And uh, so some of the most fun stuff I ever did. Um, and Susan was a great champion of mine. Uh, at one point, uh, when I first started with her, I was making these little videos. I'd started mm-hmm. doing video work and I was doing these crazy little found video stuff and just little wacky things. And at a certain point she brought me on and, and I was, and I went to her, I said, Susan, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, what's the matter? And I said, oh my God, I just sit there and 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 I'm I'm blank. I have nothing in my head and and then maybe I'll get a little idea and then I have nothing in my head and I'm there for hours and then finally I get a little you know, I went on and on telling uh-huh. her how excruciating it was and <laughs> she said, Nelson, you've just described the creative process. So <laughs> you know, basically she said, Shut up and go do your work. And so I did. And uh yeah.
0: Well, here's the thing and tell me if you, um, if this makes sense, because I'm still trying to think it through in my own brain. But, um, one thing that seems to track is just, and I say this complimentary is this, um, doing rather than thinking about doing Mm. this like tendency, which honestly I'm a little bit envious of because I think especially in these past two years for um, those of us who are in early adulthood and Mm -hmm. trying to figure it out there isn't much doing without (laughs) a lot of thinking about doing Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know I'm just kind of noticing how many things have happened because of that tendency towards yes that tendency to do which is interesting
1: yeah you know you're right you're actually right, and I say this in a slightly surprised way because I, sometimes I need to be reminded of that uh, because I feel like I'm just, you know, the least adventurous, <laughs> and, you know, but I'm not. No. And, and whenever I talk to other people, then I realize, okay, because I, I am, I really am about the yes, mm-hmm. and I really am about let's try it, you know, let's mm-hmm. try it. Uh that's part of me. The other part is, and I say this quite honestly, um, there is a part of me that if I never, ever had to get out of bed ever again, mm-hmm. like if it was my civic duty uh-huh. to stay in bed and eat bonbons and, uh-huh, sure. you know, and <laughs> yeah. read trashy yeah. novels, I would be like, yes. And, f- and that's why, in a funny way, the pandemic you know, the fact that we were staying inside Mm -hmm. for the good of all. (laughs) Yes. I'm a hero. I'm staying in my... Do you
0: consider yourself an introvert?
1: No. I mean, I've never met anyone who says says I'm not shy. Everyone says, oh, I'm so shy. I think we all feel shy. Uh I feel terribly shy, but I'm not. Yeah. You know, I'm, uh, I, I, I play shuffleboard at, the one, this great—that's uh, where you had your book signing, the right? Royal Palm uh-huh. Shuffleboard Club, and I was there with a new friend who we were just kind of trying, starting to get to know each other. And, um, and she turned to me, and I didn't know quite how to take this. She she looked at me and in and, and in sort of this this odd tone, she says, "Do you like everybody?" You <laughs> know? I, said, I said, "Well." Yeah, I mean, and until they give me a reason not to, I guess, uh-huh. you know, I just kind of, I like people. Was he like,
0: suggesting it was a bad thing?
1: <laughs> I think she's a little envious, because I, cause uh. I, I think she's a lovely person. And uh, I said, well, do you like everybody? She says, no. That's I, funny. I, I don't think I like anybody. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I think that, that people do, uh, you know, I do have that. Um, and again, I think it's part of the, the immigrant piece where Mm -hmm. you just, in my mind, if you're not my friend yet, you're going to be unless you've decided not to, that, that it's just, why wouldn't we be friends with everybody? And, and, uh, you know, I, I I really expected... It sounds like
0: a much more lovely way to live.
1: Well, I really, you know, I don't know if you've heard, that you might be too young for this, but back in the day, they used to talk about the welcome wagon, uh-huh. which when people would move in. Rolling
0: up the welcome wagon kind y- of thing. Yeah,
1: but I thought it was a literal, like this wagon would oh. come <laughs> up. Really? And I was like, where is the welcome oh, that's wagon? Funny. And, and that's And that's how I feel. And when I see anyone, you know, I'm telling you, if I see anyone on the periphery, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I've got an... Total radar Like I will go to them Because I never want anyone Not to feel Oh that's welcome. nice You know I hate it When people don't feel welcome
0: Yeah And so That's nice My mom says that she The way she describes Introvert extrovert She um, And she kind of Considers herself An introvert Which she's also yeah. Not by my book no. But she says that She gets her fuel From being alone Versus oh, Getting her fuel From being With other people Okay So do without What you I will I get that um, anyway, to circle back a little bit. <laughs> I actually I have a question get, for yeah. you. Yeah,
1: yeah. But go ahead. I'll wait. No, please. Well, I, this might be off the path, but could you say a little something? Because uh, I, uh, I didn't know you at all, but yeah. I, I gave you a book as a gift.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, oh my gosh.
1: And your mom said that it's meant a lot to you. And I so... feel like
0: we're on the same wavelength here because I actually have a quote from it right now pulled up um yes nelson gave me um letters to a young poet as a graduation gift and it did it's one of my favorite books of all time i had to create a list when i did the columbia program Mm -hmm. of my top 10 favorite books and that was very high on it um and just when i was thinking about uh, choices in the context of this conversation and um how we're not always sure why we make them it This quote occurred to me, which I think I've mentioned once on here before on this podcast, but um, it goes like this. Be patient towards all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything, to live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live some distant day into the answer. I love that which feels like you're experiencing right now too
1: yeah I guess coming to terms thank you for those answers yeah See, I no to I come really come here and, and... <laughs> no it was <laughs>
0: it was such um it was such a gift and it it just you gave it to me at the perfect time you know yes. in my life and I yeah. know that that was intentional so yes. <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah
1: because someone gave it to me you know when I was in my 20s and I, I just think that um whether it's that book, or some version of, of that wisdom, because I think, you know, especially when we're young, when it, it's so difficult to live the questions, and it's so difficult, um, you know, whatever, whatever age I was, I felt like I was already, too old for something. You know, when I was mm-hmm. 23, I was like, oh my God, I'm 23. When I was 27, I was, oh my, it was always an oh my God. No. And to actually um, to let yourself stay there and stay in the questions. But also, what I remember now in talking about the work mm-hmm. of an actor and the work that we did, you know, wherever it takes us. Um, it was amazing, and I'm sure you had this experience, too, you know, when you were training, when you were learning. I was so hungry for that. Mm-hmm. And to find a group of people that I did at different times, first with my classmates and then with the um, uh, the working theater, the, the group we started, and then with Susan and Michael, to find those people that are are in that place and willing to, um, to, to just go to that place with you mm-hmm. and live those questions, but also have the fun yeah, of exploring that, um, yeah, is amazing. I,
0: I mean, you mentioned too in the book, um, your experience at the Playhouse and being told that you're not going to understand why you're doing everything that you're doing. And I, I went through a similar experience, especially when I was studying abroad in London and um, I had this movement teacher who was incredible Um, and we were doing mask work for a while. Mm. And the first half of it, I could not understand for the life of me. (laughs) I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I mean, I did it, but I couldn't understand why Mm. we were doing it or um, how this would affect my craft overall. Mm -hmm. Um, and then one day I was in the middle of a scene with this mask on my face doing it. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks and that's the best Mm. feeling. Like that's the transformative feeling for me. Um, but I, I don't know, I guess I need to remind myself more often that I don't need the answer before I embark, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, I feel like I, especially at this age, most people ask you why 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 are you doing this why are you doing that mm. why are you making this choice um and it's not often that i say i don't know which
1: but i, I do th- I, I, I just think that i think and I've never really thought this through, I think asking people why in that way, because there's a judgment there. I just, I just don't think it's a useful question. And I do think the I don't know is a completely valid answer because, um, because our minds work in, in ways we don't understand and we have to give them a chance to do that. And Mm -hmm. I think that, I think one of the hardest things, and and now, you know, I'm 63, and and, um, what I would love to find, and I think it's hard to find in New York, uh, to find a group of people who are interested in that process in the acting, because in New York, you know, um, people are very involved in understandably mm-hmm. in, in trying to make a living at yeah. this. And so, you know, and that's not so much what, what I'm looking for right now. It's I would love to go back to the work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and, the you know, and that's kind of what I found with, with Susan and Michael, it was, it was in a realm I didn't really understand. So it's funny. I, it sort of gave me the freedom uh, you don't have to be an expert. No, yeah. because I just felt I was constantly failing. And, and, <laughs> but learning. But learning, and it didn't matter because right. Susan, so Susan is this amazing, elegant dancer, choreographer, and she couldn't care less about elegance. Like she has spent an entire career exploring uh, falling down, mm. falling down and getting back up. And trying to fly and flopping down, you know, hmm. And so she loves working with non-trained dancers. So Michael was this amazing percussionist and and improviser, but he had no no formal dance training, and neither did I. But she mm-hmm. loved working with us uh, yeah. because we had a different vocabulary. We hadn't we hadn't been, uh, you know, I, th- I mean, I love dancers and don't get me wrong. I wish I could do what they do, but when you can't, you come up with a different vocabulary and you just move differently. And yeah. she loved that. You know, she loves that, uh, that process and that exploration. That's she, so interesting. She opened it up for me.
0: Yeah. I, so. I, I feel like that's a good exercise in putting aside your ego a little bit too. And just,
1: yeah, yeah. Go out and look bad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in in your like it's subjective though. You know? like, uh, it's totally subjective. To I you. say bad in quotes. Yeah, yeah exactly. it it totally yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. I did
1: a, a a one day course. There's this folks these folks uh, I can't remember their the name right now. And so it was a one day um uh, workshop and they had all these disciplines. So there was uh trombone playing hmm. there was clowning there was flamenco dancing there wow. was like 10 different things and you had to choose three uh to try during the day okay. and you know and it had to be something preferably that you had never done before and it was so amazing
0: did you choose clowning by chance i or? did
1: clowning i've always been fascinated by flamenco so i yeah. did some flamenco it's, oh that's fine. hard but it was amazing, yeah. That's yeah, I cool. love the the clowning. I really took to. Yeah. Because uh, I felt like you know I had the 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 training kind of uh, gave me some some uh, chops there.
0: That's cool. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you found your way into um, these creative groups along the way in yeah. different capacities. And yeah. one of those that I wanted to ask you about was was StoryCorps and your work mm. with them and going down. I mean as we know, well, maybe you don't know yet, yeah. but you will know now that Hurricane Grace was not Nelson's first nor last hurricane. Um, and the work you did a StoryCorps after Hurricane Katrina mm. going down and um, recording people. I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Let's see. Well, StoryCorps for for those who don't know, is a, a project that was started here in New York, and the basic premise is that uh, people come in with a loved one, mm-hmm. and you get to record a 40-minute interview uh, with your loved one, I and love then that. that goes into the permanent archives of the Library of Congress.
0: That's so cool.
1: And so uh, Dave Isay, who was, it was his, his brainchild, uh, his, his goal is basically to, to get everyone's story that's ever lived but certainly in this country and so we did that for a, a bunch uh the the original booth was at grand central station and then we put a booth in the shadow we were at ground zero while they were still cleaning it up uh wow. we put a booth there while they were still the construction was still happening and we got a bunch of those stories around nine eleven. oh wow Um, and then we started traveling. So they had these, these silver trailers, like those old style 1950s, um, trailers that would travel around the country and we would have a professional soundproof booth in the back of the trailer. And so one of my assignments was to go to New Orleans for four weeks. Uh, And this was nine months after Katrina and, uh. I mean, to say that uh, there are parts of that city that all these years later have not come back, nine months after, it was in the middle of it.
0: Yeah, I feel Um, like that's especially, though, a time when it probably wasn't as um, acknowledged in national media anymore. Like, you know, it's still hugely impactful in the city, and people are in terrible shape, but the news moves on pretty quickly. Right. Um, So that feels like a really important
1: Time to go. It was actually. It was yeah yeah. I don't think it was an accident that we chose that time. Yeah. And uh, it was just a privilege because we had one of my first assignments. I was a facilitator, so mm-hmm. I was one of the people sitting in the booth with the, the folks recording and helping them with that process. One of my first interviews in New York was part of the the Katrina diaspora. So it was a mother. Mm-hmm who had escaped, and her daughter, they had both escaped. I think the mother escaped to Houston, and the daughter escaped to New York. Wow. And they had not seen each other, and so they were finally reunited here. Wow. You you know, and to hear, and so there were stories, they had both lived through it, but they were telling each other stories that they had not heard of each other's experience.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: So it was amazing. Oh, yeah,
0: what a privilege. It was
1: amazing, and when we went back those so that happened in September we went to of 2005 um when we were in New Orleans in May of 2006 i found the mother and daughter in New, they'd been oh, cool. gone home to New Orleans and we brought them back and they got to talk about being back home and kind of picking their lives up and and how happy they were to be back in their city and and kind of rebuilding their lives so there were so many stories um, And we had no agenda. We, uh, you know, some people, after the nine months they'd been through, they wanted to talk about anything else than Katrina. And some people very much had Katrina stories they needed to tell. So we didn't prompt people. We just wanted to give them the Mm -hmm. space to tell the stories that they needed to tell. So we got both.
0: What just an interesting way also to... I don't know if consciously or subconsciously how that affected you as a storyteller and just how you think about telling stories.
1: Yes. Um, Again, I think it's in very subtle ways. Uh, I think that one of the great things for me was that act of closing. When we would walk into that booth and you would close that door, and there would be that, that of, of uh, uh, the soundproofing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would be either in the bustle of Grand Central or the bustle of Ground Zero, and, and you would close, there'd be that suction, and suddenly you were in this completely quiet space. And for me, the interesting thing was seeing what that space afforded people that quiet, Mm. and being that close to a loved one in those circumstances, how many things were revealed for the first time. Um, One of the most moving, we had a lot of uh, adult children of Holocaust survivors who would bring their parents in, and Mm. I saw it again and again, and these were folks who had never talked about their experience, ever, ever. Wow. And and that space gave them the chance to. And so there were a lot of those stories where people were able to reveal to their children, their grandchildren, their loved ones, the things they'd never said, you know.
0: Because of how sacred you kept the space.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I think that uh, what we brought, the attention that mm-hmm. we brought, that we really... I think it was a great team of people that we made it very clear that we were there for them. And yeah, you just create a space.
0: That's great. Yeah. I, I can't say that zoom does that
1: very well. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I wanted to do this. I know. No, I am really uh, glad that
0: this, that it worked out this way because it does, there's something you just can't recreate um, with a screen in between you. It's no, it's hard to explain.
1: Yeah. And that's part of what we've lost, and I think it's going to take a while to get back. Um, yeah, you know the the intimacy we've lost with our loved ones and, and with people.
0: Well, I'm sure that writing this book has brought you brought a lot of connections back, and and people that you perhaps haven't heard from or yes, might not have seen otherwise. Huge... <laughs> so, what was I, what was that experience like?
1: It was huge to track these people down. It was really a, a piece of journalism, investigative journalism I think, because um I started using all kinds of tracking tools and, you know, search search services wow. <laughs> Uh to try to find these people and I would get, you know, ten phone numbers and I would just start calling them and none of them worked and uh when I found Barbara Trey's, uh, who's one of the, she was one of the two women on the ship. Um, I called this number and this man picked up and I said, good, I, sp- well, I'm looking for Barbara Trey's and he says, who wants her?
2: And it turned <laughs> out to be her
1: dad. Cause it was her, her childhood home. And oh, so I funny. explained to him and he said, well, I'll tell her he called and, you know, if she wants to talk to you, she'll call you. And, um, but just one after the other some of them were were very ready to talk some um it took work yeah you know because again we knew each other for those few days and I'd never seen most of them again so after 30 years here I sure. am you know ringing them up you didn't
0: get any did no one protested oh yeah one they? woman oh really yeah
1: uh, she refused to talk to me
0: but was she upset that you were doing the book at all or was that kind of Uh,
1: no. I mean, I couldn't tell. She was so uh, hesitant and just was sort of dismissive, which is kind of how I remembered her at the time. Uh I think uh, she was a professional sailor and ended up having a career sailing. And I think she was sort of looking at least me and certain others of us up and down. It's like, what are we doing with these chuckleheads which sure. she was kind of right yeah 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 <laughs> fair enough i said. yeah yeah can't blame her
0: and then like publishing the book did that bring friends or family back into your life just hearing from them and um or did it show you which connections were worthy <laughs> nurturing
1: <laughs> no i've gotten uh your now that you say that, I reconnected. Not only have I reconnected with people, but I had this wonderful experience of being um, <clears throat> being interviewed uh, for Greenlight Bookstore. A little plug oh, yes. for them. Yeah. They're my favorite bookstore in Brooklyn. And they, they did the very, very first interview. Oh, cool. Um, and uh, we were online, you know, on, on Zoom. And people were, they had left the, the chat open Mm -hmm. for people to ask questions or whatever. And all these people, friends of mine who I hadn't talked to in 20, 30 years, 40 years, people from college, um, including your mom, I think like she reconnected (laughs) with. And, it got a little distracting because they were all chatting with that's, each other. Oh, that's funny. Because they hadn't talked in 40 years. <laughs> like, I'm take thinking, us outside. I know. I'm thinking I'm trying to do an interview here. But I was very glad oh gosh. they got to reconnect. So it was very sweet, actually. Oh, that's funny.
2: Yeah,
0: it's
1: it's crazy what the internet uh,
0: can
2: do I for that. I yeah.
0: It's clear that storytelling seems to be a... Driving theme in the work that you do I don't think that's too much of a stretch Mm. And selfishly I just want to ask For myself and for anyone Listening that might be In a similar Age or boat or um, Pursuit If you had any advice that you would Give to a young person who knows At their core that storytelling Is something That's going to be a part of their life Mm -hmm. Forever Mm -hmm. Um
1: Let's see. Well, one thing certainly, and again, it wasn't an accident that I gave you the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, that the thoughts in there and the advice about, uh, you know, being willing to to, to sit with the questions um, is really, really valuable. And I, I do think that for me, when I heard that, it, it It's difficult as a younger person, I think, to... I think it's something that I needed to hear and that all of us as young artists needed to hear um, because um, there are such pressures. There are such... There's so much external noise... um, from others and then internally the the way that we criticize and you know uh ourselves mm-hmm. um that to just have that space that it's okay it's okay you know and whatever you're doing is okay uh that it's all part of a larger piece that you may not understand right now um so I think that, you know, that's certainly to have that license. And uh, the other thing to, again, you don't know where the stories are coming from. You know, don't don't say no to any of them, you know, and, and follow them because you, you just don't know. You know, I, I didn't want to do the thing, the friend who, who got me to to meet the person who made the uh-huh. book possible, I was like, I, I just kept dismissing her. I was like, Stop! Leave me alone, because <laughs> I didn't think it was possible. Sure, you know, I didn't think I had a book in me. And when I spoke to the woman, uh, Stacy, who would become my agent, yeah, uh, you know, I was real honest with her. I said, I don't have, I don't know if I have a book. You know, I don't know if I do, and I'll leave that to you to, with your experience as someone who's Nurtured writers. If you think there's something there that I'm willing to explore it, and so that was very lucky.
2: Yeah,
1: you know, so that I think there too to find the people and to um to be open to those people uh, that can I don't know give you a nudge, give you uh, uh, you know a place, and 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 the other thing now I think is um. To, there's so many places to tell your stories. I think part of that is wonderful. Um, I think there's, it's a little overwhelming now, yeah, you yeah. know, because there's so much out there. Um,
0: Which can also sometimes be a convincing reason not to do something. You know, there it's been done. There's too much of it. or
1: Yeah, but you haven't done it.
0: Uh, yeah, no, I agree. Right?
1: And I, I really do. I really think that... If 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 none of this had happened, if I had had told that story to, you know, I pictured myself uh, just telling that story, and I I still may, you know, as a very very little old man. You know, there's <laughs> a story I was told. There's I don't know if it's true, but it's about this Japanese, this very wise older Japanese lady who basically had one thing to say and you know and I can kind of picture this for some reason in my mind Uh around Japanese culture that they'll respect that yeah and she just kept saying it and people respected it and loved it and she kept telling it to more and more and she just kind of you know sowed those seeds everywhere Mm -hmm. and so um you know I I could totally see you know telling this to uh you know a room full of five people because people have said, you know, different bookstores have, have contacted me and said, would you like to come out? And, you know, how many people would you need? I said, three people. Yeah. You know, I just like meeting people and I like talking to them and I want to tell them my story, but I want to hear theirs too, Yeah. you know? And I think that, you know, for you as a storyteller, where you get to, to, uh, encourage other people's stories and be curious about theirs because, you know, it, it's, it's going to make your storytelling richer and, and, and deeper. And it really is about that connection that we build, you know, so.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and before I let you go, of course, please tell people where they can buy your oh, book.
1: Oh, the book. So the book yes. again is called Soul of the Hurricane, The Perfect Storm and an Accidental Sailor. Um, by me, Nelson Simone, S I M O N, and right now the best place to get it is any of the online. Amazon's got it. Uh, Barnes and Noble. Um, there's a, a a service I really like called the Book Depository. Uh huh. Sure. Um, which is actually out of England, but they will um, they will ship free anywhere in the world, which wow. I love, mm-hmm. and I've dealt with them. Uh, personally, and I really like their, their nice people. Very cool. Uh, and of course, the Green Light uh, bookstore. So there's the one, I think, in Fort Green, and there's the one in my neighborhood at uh, Prospect Lefferts Gardens.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank
1: you. This is so much fun.
0: It was so much fun. And thank you, everyone. I hope you're not Walking back home. No. <laughs> <In that jar. laughs> In one way
1: is, is plenty. It's, it's funny, real, yeah. Real.
0: Um, well, thank you everyone for listening. This has been Fiona Winch and Nelson Simone on Thoughtful Intentions.